Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Longest Night. We are a Game of Thrones show on the Podbreed Network, and we work with our friends at the Narth subreddit as well. My name is Rob, and you just heard me introducing myself as uh, Toby Maguire's <laughs> Peter Parker <laughs> at request of some of our listeners, uh, and I've seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times. And my name is Lizzie, and I'm watching every single episode of Game of Thrones for the very first time. And you roped me into saying that at the beginning. I did. Thank you for that. <laughs> I appreciate it. You can find us on Twitter, and you can find us on Etsy. Both of our pages on both of those websites are at LongestNightGOT. That is at LongestNightGOT. As you know, I always leave a link in the description anyway, so if there's any confusion, just click on those links and you'll find the right pages. Our title music was provided by a friend of the podcast, Edward Thomas, and you can find all of his available work in the show notes. Before we get going today, um, I think it's probably about the right time to introduce and explain our Christmas schedule and what it's going to look like. Um, I seem to remember last season, uh, sorry, last year when we were hovering around Christmas, uh, we finished season one at just the right time, Uh, but Christmas has come slap bang in the middle of season six. Uh, so we're going to have to move the schedule around a little bit. So on Monday, so that's December 13th, uh, we have an interview with Game of Thrones Traveller. Um, those of you who are listening who don't know about Game of Thrones Traveller, you can find him on Twitter under Direwolf Dragon. I'll leave another link in the show notes uh, to his account. He has made it sort of a mission of his to visit as many Game of Thrones filming locations as possible and take lots of lovely pictures for them. Um, his Twitter account is just a great, great list of pictures and tweets from various places, and we'll get some stories uh, from him in that interview. And then, as normal, a few days later, on December 16th, we'll be uploading for episode 6 of season 6. And then we're going to take a little bit of a break, but in the middle of the break, we are going to be dropping a bonus episode to talk about the third season of Succession, which has one episode left, and so if you haven't caught up with that yet, then don't listen, or watch all 29 episodes of the show, which will that will be currently available by the time the episode goes out, so that you can join in and give us some feedback. Yeah. And then we're going to take a little break over Christmas and New Year, and we'll be back on the 6th or 7th of January with uh, episode 7 of season 6, and then it will just carry on as normal. Um, right, okay, so let's get back to the present, this uh, current episode we're doing. Let's go. This week we are going to be discussing Season 6, Episode 5 of Game of Thrones, entitled The Door. It was written by series creators David Benioff and Dan Weiss and directed by Jack Bender, who's making his first of two appearances in the Game of Thrones credits. It was first broadcast on the 22nd of May 2016 to an audience of 7.89 million people. Lizzie, what do we make of The Door? It's an excellent episode, this. I thought it was I thought it was an episode sort of focused on the ghosts of the past and like how they come to haunt the present moment even you know even when you're staring the past in the face you're powerless to change it and the best course of action is always to look ahead and ensure that the same mistakes aren't made again but how do you look to the future when the present is wrought with insurmountable danger and that's the mm. question this this week seems to ask I think but yeah it's a there's, there's sort of sweet moments in this, but then there's also probably the most harrowing moment since um, the burning of Shireen. Would yes. you agree? Yeah, no, totally. Um, this episode is not in my perfect 12, for reasons we'll mm. discuss, Yeah, uh, yeah. but it only misses out by like a hair. Uh, mm. I think this is very meaningful and very emotional and quite momentous in some ways. Um, yeah. It brings the Stark kids into central focus, um, yep. really shines because of it. Aya and Bran get really brilliantly contrasted in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the other... Uh, on the on the other continent, there's the really emotional reunion and separation again with uh, Daenerys and Jorah. They, they, they managed to find a way 
to make sure that those constant quick reunions and departures between Daenerys and Jorah aren't repetitive. Each one of them has been slightly different. Yeah, um, yeah. And then you get the stuff beyond the wall, uh, which we'll talk about more at the end of the episode, I think. But of course. That's, yeah. uh, that's a real high point of uh, the season so far and a really big high point for the series as well. The other things he did, ladies aren't supposed to talk about those things, but I imagine brothel keepers talk about them all the time. I can still feel it. I don't mean it in my tender heart, it still pains me so I can still feel what he did in my body standing here right now. I'm so sorry. You said you would protect me. And I will. You must believe me when I tell you that I will. I don't believe you anymore. I don't need you anymore. You can't protect me. You won't even be able to protect yourself if I tell Brienne to cut you down. At Castle Black, Sansa receives a raven from Littlefinger and she meets him at nearby Molestown, taking Brienne for security. Littlefinger tries to explain that he was unaware of Ramsay's cruel nature, but Sansa refuses to accept his apology, stating that she feels the physical effects of what Ramsay did to her still after all this time. And Littlefinger then offers her support over the Knights of the Vale, but Sansa declines that offer and says that she'll retake Winterfell without him. Before leaving, Littlefinger informs Sansa that her uncle, the Blackfish, remember him, has retaken Riveron with the Tully army and that she might consider seeking him out. And Sansa then relays this information at a war council upon her return to Castle Black, but lies to Jon when he asks where she learned it. And after the council, Sansa sends Brienne to meet with the Blackfish and persuade him to join the Stark cause. Um, so yeah, split across two locations, the Castle Black storyline this week. Um, five consecutive episodes starting at Castle Black. I think that's yeah. a record for a location in the show, but beyond that, once the episode has started, well, what did you make of the Castle Black stuff this week? Yeah, I thought it was really good. I think I actually... Um... I prefer the stuff in Molestown this week. I thought that was great. You know, yes, yes, it's yeah. it's been a highlight of this entire season of Sansa kind of standing up for herself and discovering that inner strength. And you know, an episode where there's a lot of focus on the events of the past, it seems like Sansa is one of the few people who's actually learnt from it and grown since she last saw Littlefinger. Mm-hmm. And yeah, she as I say, she's standing up for herself. She's not. She's well. She seems not to be convinced by his excuses and his half baked apologies. She says, you know, if you didn't know about Ramsay, you're an idiot. If you did know, you're my enemy, which is easily one of the best lines of the episode. But I do worry that she might be a little bit too quick to trust Littlefinger when he says that the Blackfish has retaken Riverrun. Like mm. bearing in mind, this is someone we haven't seen since. I think it's the Red Wedding, right? The Blackfish, yeah. He took he took his leave to um, urinate against a tree and managed to escape the carnage. Um, yeah. The storyline goes in a slightly different direction in the books from that point on, I think. Uh, the yeah, show's kind cool. of roping him back in in a slightly different way. He is uh, His uh, name has been mentioned for the first time in, in a few seasons yet, but c- carry on, carry on. I was just going to say after that, Littlefinger isn't, you know, he's hardly a reliable source of information as far as Sansa is concerned. Like, look how look how wrong he got it with Ramsay. Mm. It does feel a bit like... I, I'm, I know that Sansa is just determined to, um, you know, to take Winterfell back from the Ram... From, from the Ramsays, from the Boltons. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it does seem... It's, it seems like... Letterfinger's only just come back into the fray and suddenly he's got this explosive information, but also Sansa is, you know, Sansa's trust for him is at an all-time low, surely. Well, you can clearly uh, see that, which is that it's... But I think what Littlefinger does very well in this season is that he clearly... He goes in, I think, with the intention to apologise, but leaves mm. it with the intention to just sow some more seeds of doubt to get yeah, what that's he true. wants. Um, that's true. You know, he, he kind of moves past the whole, I'm so sorry, I, I misunderestimated a stranger, this sort of thing. And by the time he leaves the scene, he's referring to John as a half-brother. like yeah. And yeah. sort of saying, well, I've heard this piece of information. And it's all, it's back to, you know, he, he can't help but scheme, really. Yeah. Okay, so my, I, I, I think the scene is uh, 
incredible. Like, really, really incredible. I think it's a great scene mm-hmm. for Sansa. I think it's a great scene for Sophie Turner. Um, and in my personal experiences with the show and my personal timeline with it, this was the first time I started to reanalyze and reevaluate what happened at the end of, uh, just to go back to Unbound, Unbent, Unbroken, what happened at the end of that episode. Because I remember, I think I said when we covered that episode, that when I first watched that episode, I didn't really know how I felt about it. And then yeah. a lot of the reaction was very negative. And so I, I was, you know, I, I went along with that and I, I understood it. And to, to this day, I, I still understand why people took away such a negative reading of it because we we covered Mm -hmm. it on the show. Yeah, yeah. But this episode was a bit of a turning point where I started to think, ah, hang on a minute, are they doing something here? Like, they've not... It's not like... It's very hard, I think, once you've seen an episode like this. I think it's hard to look back uh, Unbowed, Unbent, Unbroken. And for me, it was hard to look back at that episode and say, without doubt, that they'd done it for shock value... And because that was one of the big criticisms leveled at it at the time. Whereas mm. this, for me, this scene is it plays a very, very delicate balance and does it very well. Because as much as the scene in Unbound, Unbent, Unbroken was uh, traumatic for Sansa, I think to some degree um, we had those two researchers on in season five who were talking about it. It wasn't just traumatic for Sansa, it was quite traumatic for the audience as well. Yeah, yeah. And so. I think that this scene plays a very delicate balance where it acknowledges that the audience and Sansa kind of share trauma from that moment in one way or another, and I think it plays it very well, and I think it explains that Ramsay, the the attack by Ramsay and the assault by Ramsay, is that she isn't defined by it, but it still lives within her. And it's something yes. and it's just like you were saying, that it's something that's happened to her and she can't change it. And she can literally still feel it whenever she's walking around or, you know, like living her life. She can still feel the physical effects of it. But yeah, so she'll never forget it, but she's using it and she's building from it and she's becoming stronger because of it. And I I imagine Sansa has internally taken the mantra where it's like, you know, it's not what happens to you. It's how you respond to it. Um, And that line where she says, I can still feel it. And she does the whole, she does that tilt of her head where she goes, and I don't mean, oh, like you expect me to, like, oh, in my tender heart, it still pains me. So she's like, I can still feel it. Like, yes. And she's yeah. so, she's angry. And it, it is such a nice little, I mean, it's not a nice moment. It's very horrible, but, and it's somebody airing their trauma. But I love the fact that the show has paused to take this breath and to start to, deal with and respond to the problems that they had in the past where characters like Cersei, for example, were were definitely raped and then there was a big misunderstanding that ended up meaning that the consequences of it were just never dealt with. They were never really felt or anything like that. Whereas this, it feels like they're kind of learning from those lessons. Um, But at the same time... You can see how Sansa's experiences from the beginning are starting to make her quite guarded. She doesn't yes. really trust the men around her anymore. Even no, when she no. says she trusts John, she doesn't provide the information because she knows that John will immediately go, Littlefinger, you were you, you met with Littlefinger. Oh my and I think Sansa kind of knows that John will just panic. And he'll just kind yeah. of, he'll try to use it in a way where she's clearly got her own ideas for this. She's kept the mission a secret. She's told Brienne and no one else. She's sent him away, sent uh, Brienne and Podrick away to potentially deal with the Blackfish and bring him back north. Um, but she's become, like she describes the Northerners, suspicious of outsiders a little bit. And it's... Not just that Sansa's now like a very, you know, she's not, I mean, she is a survivor, but it's not like she's a, a totally brave survivor just yet. She's still working through these complicated feelings that being a survivor brings up. And mm-hmm. yeah, I find a lot of meaning in this. Um, and maybe it's a little bit foolish for Sansa not to mention the Knights of the Vale at this point, but it's just interesting to see that level of complexity in an area where the show has 
dealt with it. It's been clumsy sometimes dealing with these kinds of emotions for the characters, and it's nice to see a, a new a, a new side to a, a character who's gone through such a horrible experience. I agree. Yeah. I did want to mention the funny little bit, uh, one of my favourite lines of the episode, where Sansa says to John, "What do you think of my dress?" And John goes, "Yeah, um, I like the wolf bit. Like, I love that. How I love how much of a blokey response that is. And I think that Sansa's yeah, yeah. probably the closest to a bit of a not a saviour for John, but someone who can perhaps return him to his former self." A little bit. I feel, feel like he's most comfortable around Sansa, and it's happened very quickly, which I, I like. Yeah, and I've also got written in big letters here, find someone who looks at you the way Tormund looks at Brienne. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was one step away from, like, you know, rubbing his thighs like Vic Reeves used to. <laughs> yeah, twice in a week now, Brienne's had to endure Tormund sort of staring at her and raising an eyebrow and going... <laughs> oh dear. Is there a cure? I don't know. How long does it take? I don't know that either. I've seen what happens when it goes far enough. I'll end things before that. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Don't be. All I've ever wanted was to serve you. Tyrion Lannister was right. I love you. As Daenerys leaves Vyas Dothrak with her new Kalasar, she reunites properly with uh, Jorah and Dario. But before Jorah can be welcomed back into her service, uh, he reveals to her that he has contracted Grayscale. And Daenerys becomes upset upon receiving this news and commands Jorah to find the cure wherever it is in this world, stating that she needs him by her side when she takes the Seven Kingdoms. Um, just a short scene with mm. Daenerys this week. I find that there's a lot of strength to it. What, what do you make of it? Yeah, I agree. It's a rare, sweet moment for the show. A show mm. that does, often doesn't have them. Um, but yeah, despite his crimes, I think Daenerys realises that Jorah has consistently looked out for her in her moments of weakness and that she must now do the same for him in his time of need. There's that, that sort of knowing look between the two of them at the end, which is, it's quite bittersweet. It's a suggestion that they may never meet again for whatever reason, but it's also an acknowledgement of their progress since the start of their journey together and the possibility of much bigger things on the horizon when or if they reunite. Yeah, I think that this scene is very, very lovely as well. It's very, very emotional. Um, I think that there's part of Daenerys that maybe thinks that she maybe blames herself because she banished him twice and he yeah, caught yeah. Grayscale along the way. Um, but yeah, I think that it also really nicely ties up the mini storyline that Dario and Jorah have had where there have been some weak points, but I think this is a stronger one where there's a silent and quiet understanding between them now. Um, yeah. There's a bit of admiration and respect. Um very, very good performances from Amelia Clark and Ian Glenn. Um, the other thing as well, though, that I would take away from this is that it's one of these... I think after three or four weeks, or maybe even longer, of Daenerys not quite dealing with problems and then deciding to get out of it by burning things down or flying away mm. on a dragon, it was nice to see... Daenerys presented with something other than a plot hurdle. She's presented with yeah, just a nice yeah. character moment, and exactly, yeah, it's a different. It's 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 the sweeter side of Daenerys that we get to see, and it all feels very genuine. Um, and I think as well between them, you know, they all they both have their family names, which mean far more in Westeros than you know. Fam the House of Naharis doesn't exactly mean a lot in the context of the story, whereas Mormonts mm. and Targaryens have got big history in Westeros. And I think that, you know, sometimes families can be, in this show, can be defined by surnames rather than just the people that they pick up along the way. Uh, and Daenerys and Jorah have sort of acknowledged here that, like, they're the family they chose. And yeah. it's quite rare for Daenerys to 
acknowledge something like that, I think. You know, she's so very, very proud of her titles and herself and her family name and taking back what's hers and that sort of thing. And this is just a little moment where she's parked vengeance now and she's forgiven him. And Mm. it's what makes it so sad is that it's just at the point where this may be... I mean, it's left on a bit of a question mark, but that could be the last time they ever share a scene together. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah, it makes the scene very heart wrenching. Um, I do have a little question for you. Um, do you do you think that's it for Jorah? Do you think we'll ever see him again? I feel like we will. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think he'll be cured though. Yeah, I I can't possibly say. Now I know what my first act as queen will be. To execute the man who killed my father. I did. I killed him. Threw him right over Rogue Bridge and watched him fall. He was leading us nowhere and we would still be heading there if it weren't for me. No one loved him. No one wanted to follow him. He led us into two wars we couldn't win. I apologize to you all for not killing him years ago. On the Iron Islands at the King's Moot, Yara stakes her claim to the Salt Throne with Theon supporting her. Uh, after a few doubters raise a few questions, Yara seems to have convinced the Ironborn that she's the one to lead them. However, Yoron arrives and stakes a claim of his own, and convinces the Ironborn to follow him by mocking Theon at first, and then mocking Yara, and promising them an allyship with Daenerys Targaryen, and he's chosen as king and baptised. And during his baptism, Theon and Yara, knowing that they'll probably be executed if they stay around any longer, flee the Iron Islands in their fastest ships. And in response, Yoron promises to his followers that if they build him a new fleet, then he will give them the world. This is the weak point of the episode for me. I think it's a decent yeah. scene. Uh, but what about you? What about you? I do think Theon supporting Yara's claim is one of you know it's one of the best scenes in the entire episode. It feels like the first time we've seen the real Theon since I agree like, the end of season two. Yeah, yeah, and. He manages to win the Ironborn over despite their doubts about Yara's readiness to lead them. And I did I did like Yoron showing up as well and pissing all over Yara's chips in his own enigmatic way. And the ceremonial drowning, I thought was, you know, it did leave me sort of holding my breath, you know, no pun intended, but it's that they left you just long enough that you thought mm, maybe you might not wake up. I thought that was quite well done. But what I wasn't keen on was how quickly the Ironborn just switched from supporting Yara's claim to wanting her dead, and also how Theon and Yara not only managed to escape, but managed to take an entire fleet of ships with them. It felt like sort of two or three episodes worth of plot had been munged into one scene. Yeah, um, I think the King's Moot scene is fine. I think mm. the, my issue with it is that it doesn't really expand much on the Euron that we were introduced to. I mean, we get to see him in daylight, and he's his yeah, usual yeah. kind of very confident self, but I don't know. There was something about his appearance in the first episode that made him seem like an international man of mystery who spoke entirely in poems and riddles. Did he have and, an eye patch in the first see- the first sighting? I don't think so. Um, oh, I must have, I must have just imagined that. He does have an eye patch in the books, funnily enough. Oh, um, right, okay. But I, yeah, the yawn that turns up in this scene is fine. Uh, mm-hmm. I just think that there's quite a lot of stuff in there that maybe he's just doing for the crowd. It's really hard to say. I think he's characterised slightly differently in this episode compared to what he was in the second, and I prefer the characterization in the second episode. Yeah, the Euron's same. dead moment is funny, uh, where they're all just sort of stood there and you sort of half expect them to all start shuffling off and go, oh, maybe he wasn't the right guy. <laughs> Someone um, poked him with a stick, yeah. And yeah, I think that this is a big moment for Theon to stand in front of his Ironborn and give command over to Yara like he should have done in the second season. But, yeah, I think I could probably explain away the Ironborn loyalty stuff by sort of Mm. saying that, like, this is just kind of their nature. Like, they just kind of follow whoever seems strongest. This idea of paying the iron price just means that they'll follow whoever's more likely to kill an enemy and take what's his 
and Euron right, okay. made himself seem the most likely, and maybe they weren't that happy with it anyway, and they were sort of reluctantly going along with Yara because a few of them had served under her. Maybe, but I don't know. It just In the second season, the Iron Islands are kind of characterised as a place where... It's not that women haven't got any... It's not that women are like in serious positions of power in season two, but it's like Yara commands a fleet of ships and has her own team. Yeah, yeah. And the idea of a woman being queen on the Iron Islands doesn't seem that far-fetched, I don't think, but when it comes to it, it's like, here comes Euron with his cock jokes, <laughs> and let's yeah. lead him instead, and let's go and kill Theon and Yara, and it's like, yeah, okay. like I mean, it's fine, and the music's great. I love the music, and I like... Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I kind of like the montage where he's being baptised and Theon and Yara running away. There's a pretty cool cut... Uh, where Euron's head is dunked into the water and the splash that that creates um, means that they can lead out to Yara splashing through uh, the water in the cave when she's trying to escape. Um, and the potential of a an allyship between Euron and Daenerys is kind of interesting. Uh, but mm, Yeah, but it is one th- it's like you say, are they just, are the Ironborn just being led by, um, well, Empty promises. Yeah, um, it's one to watch develop. I think. Um, I think a few yeah, people yeah. were probably let down by t- by this scene at the time because um, there is a there is an actual book reference for this scene, and they decided to go in their own direction, and that's fine. You know, the show is mm-hmm. very much going in its own direction now. But I think a lot of people were kind of like, "Oh, well, this is a bit from the books, and we can, you know, we'll, we'll watch them, you know, see how they because they've done very good interpretations of big scenes from the books before, and it would be nice to have it dropped in this episode and blah blah blah." Of course, blah. Yeah. but they didn't really go with that, and that's fine. They have their own vision for Euron in the show. That doesn't really bother me, but and it's not like the one in the books is stronger or anything like that. I, I don't really know enough about it to sort of have an opinion one way or the other. But what we get on screen is, it's fine. It, it performs a function, but it, it kind of drags the rest of the episode down for me. It is surrounded by so much strong material, and this is just decent. Everyone is what they are and where they are for a reason. Terrible things happen for a reason. Take what happened to you, Lord Varys, when you were a child. If not for your mutilation at the hand of a second-rate sorcerer, you wouldn't be here, helping the Lord's Chosen bring his light into the world. Knowledge has made you powerful. But there's still so much you don't know. In Marine, Varys and Tyrion note that a fragile peace has fallen over Marine since they forged a pact with the Masters, and to maintain this peace, Tyrion summons a red priestess, Kinvara, who agrees to preach to the population of the city that Daenerys has been chosen by the Lord of Light to protect them. Varys, who is unnerved and sceptical of Kinvara, challenges her, and in response, she claims to know what happened to Varys when he was mutilated, and also claims to know the voice he heard in the flames. Um, really, really good stuff in Marine this week. I love Kinvara. What about you? Yeah, same. I thought she was great. She's she's the perfect kind of poker face to match Varys's facial gymnastics that he does during this scene. If you just yeah. focus on his face in particular as she's sort of talking, he sort of contorts it in this inhuman way. Oh, um, he hates red priests. Really, really ooh, does not ooh. like them. Varys goes in only to get shown up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair to him, he had some good points. Like, um, you know, the other red priestess we know, Melisandre, she put her faith behind Stannis, and, well, look how that turned out. Exactly. Um, and I just I just love how, like, neither of them are particularly in the right or the wrong here, but Kinvara definitely wins it's the true. scene. There's the moment where Kinvara takes a little pause... And she looks up at Varys and then goes, yeah. all of us are who we are and where we are for a reason while she walks up the stairs. And it reminded me a little bit of Tywin Lannister approaching the uh, the Iron Throne in season three when Joffrey tries to challenge him and Tywin just goes, dong, dong, yeah. dong, very purposefully up those steps while Joffrey's like, oh, shouldn't have said that. But <laughs> I like the way that this episode introduces something that also comes up in Bravos as well, but because we're talking about Marine first, uh, I'll mention it here, 
is the many ways in which Daenerys' story up to this point can be interpreted and the many ways in which the Red Priests and Priestesses have all got different ideas about who the promised person is to um, save them or, uh, you know, bring the dawn or whatever the, the prophecy is. Where Because um, I think it, Melisandre thinks that it's Jon and Kinvara thinks that it's Daenerys. Yeah, and yeah. Thoros of Mir probably thinks it's Beric Dondarrion. And yeah. so there's all of this, like... The, yeah, there's just all these little conflicting points within the uh, the, the larger religion. I guess it's the um, the scene from Life of Brian where they all interpret the sandal <laughs> in a in a different way. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, I think her name, the actress's name, I could be pronouncing this incorrectly, but I think it's Anya Buchstein or Buchstein. Um, she puts in a terrific shift. Um, yeah, yeah. One of my favourite just kind of random introduction characters that we've never really heard of before. It's not really a spoiler to say we don't hear from her again. It's like her Uh job is done. Like She just sort of comes in and says, yep, I'll spread the good word. That's fine. And it just makes it feel very strangely creepy and terrifying. It reminds me a little bit of how Melisandre was uh, pre-existential crisis (laughs) that she's going through right now. (laughs) Absolutely. Totally agree with that. Worry not is well. I have here a decree from my father, Tywin Lannister, the richest man you'll see. He proclaims me hand of the king. The position's mine for life. And he's given me permission to take Sansa as my wife. You'll learn that once I lack in height, I make up for in appetite. Let's forget about your plight and go rehearse our wedding night. In Bravos, Arya is assigned to assassinate an actress uh, who's named Lady Crane, and she's portraying Cersei in a stage play recounting the War of the Five Kings, and while observing the play for the first time, Arya becomes visibly distressed and upset by the portrayal of her father, Ned Stark, as a bit of a bumbling oaf. Uh, and after the performance, Arya sneaks backstage and observes that Lady Crane drinks rum. Ah... Uh, not a lot of plot in this episode, in this bit of Bravos, but wow, this uh, I fucking love so this. rich. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it. go ahead. Yeah, Arya's been playing a hitman games, evidently. But <laughs> um, we'll get it out of the way early. I did the the Leo DiCaprio point of the screen when I saw Kevin Eldon. Yeah, and then I saw Richard E. Grant. I'm like, oh my god, it's it's random actor Christmas, <laughs> <laughs> and Essie Davis as well. And Essie Davis, yeah. Of uh, um, the Duke fame by this point. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Grant is the more famous of them, but yes, yeah. Kevin Eldon's part of that class of British comic actors who they seem to have cameos in things like this all the time. It's like mm-hmm. like Tony Way, who played Dontos Hollard. Yes, yeah, exactly. Sort of those, you recognise him, but you've, you might not know his name unless you look at the credits. Um, with regards to the retelling of the Five Kings itself, it's funny to think that we were only witnessing these events ourselves this time last year. Yeah. But the way that the story has mutated and bent out of shape since then, it makes it feel like it's a lifetime ago. You know, I feel like, I feel like it's two factors at play here. We've discussed how the War of the Five Kings left behind vast swathes of people in the countrysides and the places far away from King's Landing. And you do Mm. get the sense that without books, without ravens, without kings or other important figures caught up in the action, that misinformation spreads as gossip. It's like a sort of Chinese whispers that inherits the biases of the teller and it becomes increasingly grotesque and overblown as it's passed on. Mm. But then... There's also the sense that this is history being told by the, well, the winners. It's winners in heavy air quotes. At this point, it's difficult to consider the fractured Lannister family the winners of anything. But it brings to mind the similarly absurd retelling of the story at Joffrey's wedding. You know, Joffrey portrayed as some sort of folk hero taking control of the Seven Kingdoms from his drunken lout of a father against the wishes of a boorish Ned Stark. It suggests that that word-of-mouth reshaping of the events in the war spread outwards from King's Landing itself, passing down from the Lannister elite down to the common folk in the city, and then just 
gradually further outwards. And it, it's, yeah, it's a real highlight of the episode. It's elevated by Arya's obvious bewilderment at seeing a father's legacy being distorted and Tyrion depicted as some sort of rabid sex pest. And, and of course, the king who killed Ned and abused Sansa treated like a courageous luminary. And mm. so... It means Arya herself is left with this emotional paradox, at once having to deal with the pain of reliving her family's demise, but knowing that she can never truly be no one if she acknowledges the residual trauma that she's carried with her for all this time. Mm. It's really good stuff. Yeah, I think that Jack and Hagar has sent her here on purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Because he knows that... Aya will have to respond to this one way or another. And if she feels nothing, then, you know, big success. Whereas if she feels something, then she ain't no one. And it's a way for him to work out whether Aya is truly no one or not. But yeah, you were saying about this War of the Five Kings play. Ah, God, I love this. Um, It's so funny. It is. And the verse, like the the way that they're speaking in verse is superb. Um... Again, like you say, these appearances from Richard E. Grant, Kevin Eldon, Essie Davis, um, this sense of false history. Again, like you were saying, this is something that takes me all the way back to the third episode of the first season where Cersei turns to Joffrey and says, one day you will sit on the Iron Throne and the truth will be what you make it. Yes, you're right. Isn't that just this laid bare? I really do love this. Um, Arya has to witness the events of season one all over again and, like you say, relive this trauma. Um, Jacken knowing that this will either make or break Arya. But the big thing for me um, is that this scene feels like it moves ever so suddenly into Game of Thrones' kind of thematic endgame or yeah. its overall thematic end like point, which is like that it's a story about stories. Yeah. And that's what it's kind of been up to this point. And it's lots of people, so up to this point, looking at history and going, Well, I'll learn from this or looking at the the past, either their own pasts or myths handed down to them or gossip transported to them across the oceans. Because remember, this is in Bravos. This isn't even in Westeros. This is like, oh, what are they all doing over there in bloody Westeros? What are they like? You know, all these farting yeah, yeah. kings and like um, Ned Stark conspiring with Tyrion to try and take the Iron Throne and then Tyrion backstabbing Ned and all this stuff that we know is complete nonsense. Um, yes. But... And it's about the stories that we believe in, the stories that we choose to ignore, the stories that we believe about ourselves, the stories that we believe about our family. It's something that's come through with Bran this season as well, where Bran has always been told that Ned Stark defeated Arthur Dane at Sword of the Morning, but it turns out he didn't. And he, he, I mean, he, he emerged victorious, but not in a way that was like an honourable victory or no, anything no. like that and it's just it's just these little you know as Arya and Bran grow up it's these stories that they were told as kids and the things that they endured they're now having to sort of look at them with slightly older eyes and slightly more mature eyes and now they're finding out that all these I imagine it's like growing up when you're normal like when you're in the, the on earth where I don't know you reach sort of like your mid-twenties and you start learning family secrets from when you were five and six years old that you weren't aware of like yeah, maybe yeah. your grandparents weren't as happy as you thought they were or like maybe there was an aunt and a sister that fell out or an aunt and a cousin that fell out that you didn't know about because you were always protected from it and with Ayu and Bran it's it, and we'll talk more about Bran in this episode obviously because we've still got his whole section to go with Bran it's like all these stories of his father that he thought were true but turns out they're not. And now with Aya, she knows the truth because she was there. And now she, there's nothing she can do to change how people... Change the story that people have chosen to believe. Um, mm-hmm. There's a bit as well from this episode um, that I just want to mention that it was actually cut from the episode that's in a deleted scene in the full All version right. of this play that you can find on the DVD extras. Where <gasps> you, you, know the, you know the two women who were stood next to Aya in the audience... Oh, yeah. So 
basically, they cut it out of the episode because I think it would have been a bit too on the nose. And I think they made a wise decision, but it's something that you can look up afterwards and laugh about, which is that these two women in the audience are sat there going, oh, vulgarity, nudity, and profanity. How original. This is a disgrace. And I'm like, okay, you're making a joke about what people say about the show. Very funny. How transgressive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I found that quite funny. Um, going back to the stuff that happens before the play, um, I love Jack and Hagar and his endless supply of vials of poison. It just seems that whenever <laughs> anyone turns around, it's just like, here's another vial of poison. Um, I think the editing of the wooden staff fight sequences was pretty cool. I, th- I love how yeah, yeah. well cut that is and how well cut they have been uh, this season generally. Um, but yeah, the, the material and content in Bravos is super this week. I'm really glad you enjoyed it as well because it, I think it's a real strong point of Arya's storyline, this. I think that I think we're kind of getting to the point now, though, where it's like Arya's probably not going to follow through with the like being no one and like there are just little hints and things like that and so while we've all known ever since the third episode of season five that needle is Mm. still in the rock and that needle's going to have to come back out at some point it's good while we're kind of stalling for time that yeah (laughs) we we get to watch a fun play where richard e grant plays a very flatulent robert baratheon two fart gags this season by the way although i guess that's the point of this fart gag. <laughs> yeah. Also, um, Tyrion looked like you know the um, you know the Nightman cometh from Always Sunny. Yes. He looks like Danny DeVito was the troll in that. <laughs> Give me that leg, boy. We come to our final location on the map, beyond the wall at the Three-Eyed Raven's cave, where Bran Stark and the Three-Eyed Raven are observing a vision of the children of the forest, and they create the Night King, and by extension, uh, the White Walkers, and Leaf explains to Bran that they created the White Walkers to defend themselves from the First Men. And later on, Bran enters a vision on his own. He finds himself surrounded by the army of the dead, and the Night King touches him before he can escape, breaking the spell that surrounds the cave and allowing the Night King to enter. The Three-Eyed Raven warns Bran that he must evacuate the cave with Hodor and Mira, but the army of the dead arrives before they can leave. The Three-Eyed Raven begins transferring his knowledge to Bran. While in a vision, Bran hears Mira's cries of help and splits his consciousness, allowing him to stay in the vision while warging into Hodor in the present. The Three-Eyed Raven is killed by the Night King, while Leaf and Bran's direwolf Summer are killed in the escape. Mira does manage to kill a White Walker, though. Outside the cave, but still being pursued by Whites, Mira repeatedly orders Hodor to hold the door of the cave shut while they flee. In the vision, Bran becomes overwhelmed and accidentally enters the mind of Willis, who, as we know, is the young Hodor, forging a connection between the past and present and causing him to have a seizure, during which he repeats the words, hold the door, as he hears Mira's shouts in his head, until they slur together to form the word Hodor. In the present, Hodor holds the door back for as long as he can, sacrificing himself so that Bran and Mira can escape. I think that is the longest link I've done on the whole show where I've had to explain everything that goes on. Um, Well done. You did really well. Yeah. So other than summing up the plot, which I've just done, try and sum up how that makes you feel emotionally. How did did you feel? (laughs) I mean, it's fucking harrowing, isn't it? Mm. That, you know, this light relief character can have the bleakest backstory imaginable. I feel like we need to start with the, you know, the revelation about the children of the forest, though. Yes, yeah, I think that's a good place to start. I think it <laughs> will build towards the Hodor stuff slowly. Yeah, I mean, like Bran, the children of the forest are kind of haunted by their actions in the past. And, you know, as much as they do try and defend them, there is that note of guilt to, you know, their explanation. Yeah. And how it, and, you know, how it impacts the present moment. 
quite literally creating a monster which would aid them in the short term but create this unprecedented harm in the long term it kind of reminds you of like j robert oppenheimer who was credited with being the father of the atomic bomb for his role in the manhattan project you know he's later quoted the um the bhagavad gita by saying now i am become death the destroyer of worlds yes it's that thing of you know you you create something for short-term game but you have no idea of what the long-term consequences would be yeah so basically just to give you a bit of um a bit of history uh mm-hmm. with white walkers and the children of the forest basically the uh the first men who came to westeros um basically invaded uh, the children of the forest were the original inhabitants of westeros and so the first men and the children went to war and during this war, the children of the forest decided to... I think they kidnapped some of the first men and stabbed it with a dragonglass dagger, therefore creating these monsters. And it was like, okay, now you go and destroy men. And then the White Walkers got too powerful and too big. And then the children of the forest and the first men sort of looked at each other and went, hmm, now we have a bigger enemy and we probably have to become allies here. Mm. And so they formed this thing called the Pact. And then... The White Walkers, as we know, were defeated about 10,000 years ago. A big wall was put up, and that was the last we heard of that. Until now, where things are like dragons are coming back to the world, White Walkers are back, and so Bran has uncovered this massive revelation and knows that they were created with dragonglass. Um, and I think also that plays a part, just to talk about it now, uh, in Leaf's Sacrifice, where I think Leaf's Sacrifice is sort of an apology, where... Mm. She says, like, listen, I created this mess, so I'll try my best to take as many of them with me when I take myself out. I think Bran entering the vision, though, the next vision, is the start of him just, like, he just fucks this all up, doesn't he? From, like, the last 15 minutes of this episode is just Bran getting things wrong, I feel like. Absolutely. He's bored, so he completely sacrifices their safety, essentially. (laughs) And you know what that reminded me of? You go way back to the start of the series, episode one, mm. when he was under strict instruction not to go, you know, climbing on walls and such, you know, by Catelyn. Yeah. And it's a similar sort of thing here where he's under strict instruction not to go into visions on his own without the three-eyed raven, but yeah. he does it anyway, and everything gets fucked up as a result, and all of these horrible things happen just because you know you disobeyed an instruction yeah and it's a a very similar moment here and he ends up in the vision uh which is very creepy a very it's very he's walking through the army of the dead and then suddenly the night king looks at him and like oh new actor for the night king by the way um this is the start of uh, vladimir ferdick playing the Night King. Uh, he was a stunt guy on Game of Thrones for a few seasons. It's also Vladimir Ferdick that's uh, chained up against the tree and gets stabbed with the dragonglass dagger, which is the creation oh, right. of the Night okay. King and stuff. So that's cool. him. Um, he, they decided to make him the Night King. Uh, this enough. scene kind of reveals as well that the Night King has similar abilities with the sight, uh, as we'll call it, where he can enter in to Bran's visions and sort of detect when he's there. Um, mm. It's really, really... Uh, I remember the the trailer for season six. I think it's a good decision that we didn't watch the trailer, actually, because this moment is in season six where Bran, the camera, does that Michael Bay circular panning shot, and then yeah. it reveals new information behind him, and the Night King is there over Bran's shoulder... And I think that would have given this away a little bit. So uh, I think, you know, the surprise element is probably what made this uh, this particular scene work so well for you. And then obviously it gets touched and they have to leave. And then they start where Hodor says his own name rather a lot in this sequence. Yes. And yeah. you can tell now why they've done it. Um, when... I don't know if you noticed, there's a little bit that I didn't notice on the initial TV broadcast because I watched it in standard definition and then noticed afterwards on the HD copy. 
is that their breath goes cold. I, I hadn't quite worked that out on the standard definition version of the episode where I was like, wait, what are they all suddenly panicking for? And then watching the HD version, I was like, oh, it's because they can see their own breath, which means that the White Walkers are around. I didn't notice that. Uh, yeah, That's really clever. When they're so, when they're talking about blood sausage or egg or whatever it is that they're talking about, and Hodor's like going Hodor because of course he never says anything else, um, and then suddenly their breath goes cold, and then Mira panics and they run outside. No, I I thought Mira just heard like a rumbling in the distance or something. Mm. Um, and in the panic, um, the question I have really, and it's a question that hasn't really been answered, which is why Bran is being shown the vision that he's being shown by the Three-Eyed Raven. Is it because the Three-Eyed Raven wants to show Bran what happened to Hodor? Is it because he wants to show him what... Because this, it, I find it kind of mad to think that Hodor became Hodor at the exact same moment that Ned was leaving for the Eyrie. I find yeah. this... I can't believe those two things happened at the same time. Where, But it's what's being said to Ned that makes me wonder whether the whether there's a, there's a message in there too, where, like, he, he says, when you go to the Eyrie, it's Ned Stark's father saying, like, when you go to the Eyrie, comport yourself with dignity. You know, don't get into fights, but if you have to fight, win. And mm. I just wonder if it's something that, like, the Thread Ravens may be saying to Bran in that moment, but I mainly think it's because this is the moment where Hodor becomes Hodor and Bran has to see this and he can't look away from it. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question and then you can sort of go on with your, you can carry on with your analysis. When did it Mm. click for you that the hold the door thing was kind of going to, was, was the, the, the moment where it was like, where you went, oh my God, Hodor. Like when, when did that moment happen? Can you, can you remember? I think it was only, there's that one shot where Bran sort of looks over at Willis you know, just before he collapses on the ground. Mm-hmm. And you can hear Mira, like, like hold the door, hold the door. It's like, oh, okay. I know, it. yeah. And then, you know, obviously he collapses on the ground, has a seizure, and like you say, hold the door becomes hold door becomes Hodor. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds balmy when you put it on paper, but this it is why does, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I've recently been watching, um, I'm nearly coming to the end of Lost, and Jack Bender, the director of this episode, directs and produces many episodes of Lost, and I think that's why they got him in, because there's lots of time travel stuff in Lost, uh, mainly towards the end. There isn't any time travel until the fifth season in Lost. Um, mm. And the rules of time travel in Lost are basically the same as the rules in Game of Thrones, kind of. Um, right, okay. With Lost, the characters literally go back in time and they can interact with what's happening, but they can only interact with it in the sense that they have to... They only interact with the history that's already happened. So, like, it's they'll go back in time and there are no paradoxes created. Everything that happens... The, the, the rule in Lost is whatever happened, happened. Right, okay. But, and you can only interact with it to make sure that real history occurs and the characters have to realise it for themselves that history will only happen if they do it. And so it's a similar thing with this where only Bran can't interact with the past. He can only, you know, he can't change anything that's happened. He can only watch it happen. Mm. And yeah. that just makes this scene, like... It's just so... Not only do you get the Thread Raven being cut into smithereens, great shot of him fading off on the wind, by the way, whatever that is. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Um, the Night King thinking, yeah, finally got my man, only to... <laughs> only to, only for Bran to be the guy just running out of the cave. Um, and then you get the, the whole door, hold the door, like the moment where Willis's eyes go back in his head is the moment where it clicks for me too. And I'm like, oh... Oh my god, this is how this happened. And it's like, the question that we didn't even know we wanted an answer to, like, what happened to Hodor? And you think, like, when you see him in the second episode of the season, it's like, oh, maybe he got kicked in the head by a horse, or, like, something like that. But no, it turns out that the kid that he's carried on his back since the second episode of the show, hundreds and hundreds of miles to the ends of the earth... 
somehow in this future that hasn't even happened yet creates a mad time loop that connects yeah. at the point where Hodor has this seizure and it's like so all he says for his whole life is a slurred version of the words that are said to him as he dies and yeah so like and I love the effect of the editing as well in this. I don't, I'm not sure it's intentional, but the effect of the editing means that when Hodor's on the floor going, Hodor, Hodor, it's like he's shouting at himself through time because they keep cutting to present-day Hodor and they keep cutting back to Willis as he shouts, yeah. Hodor, Hodor. And it's like he's cheering himself on, like, you have to do this. And you have to make sure that Bran gets away and you have to make sure that Bran is set off on his destiny but also at the same time Hodor is a victim of Bran's carelessness here and it, it portrays him as a hero for about 30 seconds and then you realise that he's like this, this horrible victim of circumstances, this young boy's had his whole life taken off him and his whole yeah. life has been building towards this moment and building towards his own death and crikey like <laughs> you know and then the Stark theme plays and it's like, we didn't really know his family name, but again, with Daenerys and Jorah, it was like, you know, that was the family that he chose, and it's the family that he is, really. And what other theme could you play? And Mira kind of knows what she's doing in this moment, where it's like, Hodor has to be sacrificed in this moment, because she's like, you know, well, don't come with us. Like, you know, hold the door. And, ugh, it's... It's just so, it's so sad. It's still, it's still, I remember first watching this, leaning forward and also leaning backwards in my chair at the same time as I was watching it happen, hands on my head, two o'clock, yeah, three o'clock in the it's, morning. It's like, that moment where you know, like, he's not going to make it out alive and also you're witnessing, well, you're witnessing him for telling his own death, essentially. Yeah. And Fuck it's it such a clever thing that they do it. Yeah, I don't yeah. think it, I, it, this is something apparently that will come up in the books. This is one, the second of the three. You know, Shireen was the first holy shit moment, and apparently this is the second. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Third is yet to come. Yeah, you do sit there, and it still makes me choke up, and it still makes me very upset. And watching people react to it, the moment where they all where it clicks in their heads, and they go, "Oh my god, Hodor!" Like for some of them, it's the moment where his eyes roll back in his head. For some, it's the moment where he says, hold the door for the first time. Mm. And Bran's standing over there crying, knowing that there's nothing he can do either. And Christ, yeah. And I remember a friend of mine, when I showed this episode to him for the first time, he was like, I hate Bran. He says, I never liked his storyline in the first four seasons. Now they've brought him back and it's bloody responsible for Hodor being killed. And he was like, I bloody hate Bran. I don't like him at all. And... I think that's a bit harsh. I, I, I do like Bran, and I think his storyline this season has been excellent. But no, I, I like it, Bran as well. I think yeah. his, considering he's only in this, like, in the universe, he's only, what, 15? Yeah. You think of how much of his young life has been punctuated by guilt. Yeah. You know, guilt for Ned's death, guilt for Catelyn's death, guilt for Rob's death, all because he climbed on a wall and discovered the dark secret of the Lannisters. Yeah. Like, it's not his fucking fault that he's had to go out of here because all this stuff's happened. You know, if in a perfect world, he'd still be in Winterfell and he'd still have his family around him. Failing to shoot arrows into a target, being exactly. beaten by Arya. Exactly. Um, the only other two notes I have is that... Yeah. Oh, I suppose... Oh, no, I've kind of mentioned it in the plot thing. Obviously, there's Mira kills a White Walker, but the um the two... So she joins uh, John and Sam amongst the ranks of people who've done that. The two things I did want to mention is that um, we're running out of direwolves. That's uh, true. There's only two left wandering the universe now. Um, Ghost and Nymeria. Yeah. Because Shaggy Dog is gone, Grey Wind is gone, and now Summer is gone. And the other thing is that the White Walkers and the Night King can walk through fire, but Whites can't. Yeah. So. So. Make that, of that we've got what that you will. to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. And as the comment you mentioned to me as well a couple of days ago about the uh, the size of the budget suddenly becoming very obvious in this uh, sequence as well, with the Whites crawling along the walls. Yeah, <laughs> I mentioned like um, like Xenomorphs who were also not resistant to fire. Oh yeah. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. interesting little parallel there. Yeah. All right, then. I think that brings us to the end of a, a very emotional and um, 
very momentous episode. Uh, Absolutely. So I want, I want your favourite line from it. Well, it's not my favourite line, but I think it's the only one it could be. It's hold the door. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, you're not going to get many uh, people complaining about your choice of that one. <laughs> no, I'm sure. <laughs> Who's your loser this week? This seems as good a time as any to nominate <clears throat> The Night King as yes. my loser of the week. I think that's our second nomination for The Night King. Yep, it, it is. For, he was yep. the loser of the week at Hard Home, and he's the loser of the week this week. Yeah. Uh, your winner? Uh, my winner of the week is Hodor. Okay, yeah, I think that's that's definitely fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, as I said at the top of the episode, our schedule's going to be a little bit truncated with uh, interviews and bonus content over Christmas um, as we head towards the uh, most wonderful time of the year and uh, we'll be back to normal sort of like first second week of the new year uh, when we'll be back on our regular schedule so yeah in a a couple of days time I'll upload our interview with Game of Thrones Traveller and then next week uh, our episode is normal season 6 episode 6 which is entitled Blood of My Blood Uh, That'll be uploaded as normal next week. And then we're going to take a little bit of time off, but we're going to do a bonus episode about the third season of Succession and how we've both felt about that. Uh, That ends uh, in a couple of days' time, actually. So looking forward to that. And then in the new year, we'll be back uh, with season six, episode seven. So yeah, we will see See you then.